0: That's the way it is at Christmas harvest. That's the way it's supposed to be. Go ahead and grab a seat. Grab your Bible. Turn to Mark chapter 10. Listen to me. Here's what so often happens. We sing a song big and bold and loud like that. And we do that, right? Right? You with me? Okay. Now here's what ends up happening. We go to the manger scene and it's like this. Don't wake the baby. Okay. but, But hold on here. Hold on here with that. I, I get that, the whole cute baby thing. But to be frank about it, going from the big bull of the great I am to sh- look at the little cute little baby is so superficial. And it's actually not connecting the dots. The truth of the matter is we need to go from the great I am to the manger And bold and big, and here's the deal. Today, our time together here in God's Word is all about exiting the superficial of the manger and entering into the magnitude of the manger. Because there is a problem that we commonly have today. We take things like the manger and we go superficial. But we're not going to do that. We can't do that. That's not what we're about. That's not what God has called us to be. And that's not what the image of the manger is. So let me pray and let's dive in and get our minds blown away. Lord God, wow, you are that one. You are the great I am, Father. We fall before you. Undeserved men and women, boys and girls. Sinners before the holy God of creation. And yet the I am came. And the I am is. And so we all seek to fall face down before you today, to our knees, before your face, because you are awesome. Thank you for the manger and all that it says and all that it proclaims and all that it holds. You are amazing. In the precious name of Jesus we pray, amen. Mark chapter 10. Hey, if you're visiting with us, welcome. Merry Christmas. And uh, we're big about God's word around here. And If you're not used to that or used to bringing your Bible, We want for you to have a Bible open on your lap, grab one from the seat, or look on someone next to you if you don't have one with you, or go ahead and turn the digital light on and and grab your digital Bible there and and have at it. Um, We're in Mark chapter 10. Now, you may be thinking, hey, uh, Pastor Doug, did you not like have the class or get the memo that uh, Mark chapter 10 does not have the manger in it? and in fact there's no mary there's no joseph there's no star there's no bethlehem there's none of that in mark chapter 10 why are we going there great question great question here's why one because as you've been here you know that we are in a series through the gospel of mark and and 2 weeks ago we went through the we were at the end of chapter 9 remember that uh, back to the line serving all uh, 2 weeks ago and uh, uh, we are now going to jump into chapter 10, and and part of the thing is, is what we are diving into, both this Sunday and the next Sunday and the Sunday after that, as we go into uh, Mark chapter 11, these are perfect texts for this season. And so as we dive into this, we're going to see the manger in it, we're going to see post Christmas in it, and we're going to see the start of the year in it. And we are just going to savor this, and, and, and the manger is all in this text here as we dive in. But, but I want for you to know that um, we're going to leave some of Mark chapter 10 behind. We're not going to be covering all of Mark chapter 10, and part of the reason for that is, is for us to be able to be finished so that we can dive into uh, Revelation after Easter, so we can finish up this series and then dive into Revelation. We need to jump a little bit, so Mark chapter 10 is for you to be able to spend some time in and dive in. We're going to go to the section here today, Mark chapter 10, verse 32 through 45. Okay, you with me? You with me? All right, let's dive in. Um, Lord, may you be honored. A solidified pursuit. We're going to start in verse 32. A solidified pursuit. We're going to see Christ here uh, and what he is all about. Verse 32, setting the context, and they were on the road, and they were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. There's a few things here. Let's pause right there, get some context here. A few important things to set us up. Uh, And they were on the road. Uh, They are making their way from the northern portions of Israel. We'll have a map in the next week or two. Northern portions of Israel, they're moving down, headed down to Jerusalem. And we know they're headed to Jerusalem because that's what Mark tells us in the context. They were on the road, so they're walking, they're headed south, they're going to Jerusalem. They're going up to Jerusalem, by the way. Uh, in, In that text of that, Uh, going up, why is that there? What does that mean? Uh, Going up has both a topographical, as far as an elevation altitude reality of it, from where they were, they were going up altitude-wise. But I just want to bring this in from this standpoint. In the day, when they talked about going to Jerusalem, the common term used was, we are going up to Jerusalem. Even if you were at a higher altitude, you would say that. And the reason that they would say, I think this is just really neat. They would say that because going to Jerusalem was an elevation of the mind move. We are going somewhere really special. This is a big deal place. So when you go there, you're going up to it. And it's just kind of an attitude mindset. I love that about some of their conversation and how they used some of the terminology back then. So they're on the road. They're going up to to where? To Jerusalem, the holy city. Uh, This is a very special place. And combined with this, you need to understand two additional things with this to get the feel for what's happening. We are just over a week away from the crucifixion on the actual timeline in the scriptures. I mean, the crucifixion is within a week away from this walk on the road. Secondly, along with this, I want for us to understand a big important thing is we are a day a couple days before the Passover starts. And so that means, you know, we're in the season of Christmas and it's just like it's in the air. That's what was happening then. It was the season of Passover. It was the big season of the entire year. And so people were getting ready for it, excited for it. It was just in the air and we'll see here, some of these people are joining them as they're headed to Jerusalem in this. So they're on the road, they're going up to Jerusalem and then it gives us another piece of information and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Now I think a reasonable question to ask is, is who cares? I mean, honestly, they're, they're headed to Jerusalem. Who cares the order of who's walking first and who's, here's the answer to that. Mark does. Mark cares. Mark is very in tune with various pieces of terminology. The Gospel of Mark is very in tune with places of things and movement of things. And I think what is happening here, I don't want to make more of it than it is, but Mark doesn't need to put that Jesus is walking ahead of them. But do you know this? Jesus is leading the way to the cross that's a week away. Hey, friends, your Savior is not in the back of the bus, whining and complaining about what's coming in the coming week. He's leading the way in the walk of it. Oh, it's just a beautiful image. So symbolic here of what's happening. And may I remind you of this image of the manger. The the image of the manger says the same thing. That the Godhead is pursuing after doing a redemptive work to make available to all of sinful mankind. When you see the major, there's not just a little baby. There's the entire eternity past work of the Godhead and the second person of the Trinity in that whole image. Friends, this is a solidified pursuit, not a willy-nilly happening. We'll see some more of that later. So uh, they're going on the road. They're, they're to Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus is walking ahead, kind of the next group. Uh, kind of you get the idea in the text. And they were amazed. It's referring to the disciples amazed. Amazed at what? Like did deer run across the road? Did you know? Like something cool happen? No, we don't see anything like that happening. What we actually see happening is in this word. It takes on not they were amazed by an event. They were amazed as a state of mind. So here's Jesus walking out front, as Passover, he's headed to Jerusalem, they're following back, and his 12 guys are following with an amazed state of mind. They're just like blown away from the last three years of time hanging around Christ. They're amazed by the person of Christ, they're amazed by everything that he's done in it, and honestly, in it all, they're also just amazed because of the season. It's the season of Passover, Hey, it's Christmas, you guys. Merry Christmas. Doesn't that just make this week different than every other week? And it was the same for them. And it carried this idea of it's Passover. And all of this is amazing. And our guy's leading the way out front. And then the next thing, and those who followed, it has this idea of fellow travelers. Remember, not only people that were following Christ kind of during some of this time besides the disciples, but I think this even has the idea of those people who are joining them on the walk as they are all kind of beginning to head towards Passover. And so you've got these people coming along and what, and it says they were what? Afraid. That's interesting. The, the word in the original language can mean uh, really one of two things or kind of both of two things here. Uh, generally, it, it can mean uh, scared or frightened, like boo, kind of a thing. Okay, ah, I'm scared. Okay, <laughs> just having fun here with you. The other thing is it can have this idea of reverent awe, like fall down, amazed awe kind of a thing. So part of the question is when you read a word, just like we do in English, the context tells what the meaning of that word that can have different avenues to it, what it means. And in this, one of the things I bring in is, is in the gospel of Mark, the form of this word is used five times. This is one of them. The other four of those times are all used to refer clearly to scared, frightened, boo, ah, okay? Okay. And here, when you go through this, I actually think that's what this is more alluding to. The people that are walking behind, you know, you've got Jesus' pursuit to the cross. You've got the amazed disciples. And you've got people back here like, Ugh. why would they be scared? Why would they be afraid? A couple reasons. One, it's Passover, they're on the way to Jerusalem, the holy city, the city that holds all of the main leadership of Israel. And who has been in conflict with Jesus, the one leading the way, all this time? All the leaders in Jerusalem, they're going to their house and it's like, game on! Something's going to be going down here. And then you add the whole season of Passover. You add what's happening in the political structure of the day. Friends, I'm got. i trying to get this on the table for us to understand this. This wasn't like a, you know, hey, we're going to Jerusalem, you know, kind of a walk. This is like, boom. And everybody back here is kind of like, this guy who's leading the way up front, I'm telling you, something's going down this coming week in Jerusalem. It's all coming to a head. It's going to be face out, bam out, WWF. And they are afraid because we've not seen anything like this in our lifetime. Here we go. Pull the pants up. And it's big boy time. That's what's going on here. And I love this. Because if you don't get this... Feel out of this. You are going to miss the whole movement that Mark brings us along for the, coming, for the coming week, which is going to be a few months for us, as we go through this in the whole passion and crucifixion. Oh, It's cool stuff. And they were what? Afraid. Let's pick up. Verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem. Jesus was walking ahead of them and they were amazed and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he, Jesus, began to tell them what was to happen to him, uh, saying, by the way, this first word, see, this is kind of like behold. This is kind of like a, when you're talking to people. You know with your kids, where something's going on and you're trying to have a conversation and you go, look at me, look at me. That's what's happening here. It's like, Mate, look, look, let's look. And so he's pulling them in because of all this stuff going on. He's like, see, guys, hear me. We're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him and after three days, he will rise. Okay, let's talk about this. They're on the walk. Jesus is out front. His men are amazed. People behind are afraid. Jesus pulls his 12 together. This is the third time that Jesus grabs his guys and has this kind of conversation with them. The first happened in chapter 8, I think, at verse 31. The second happened in chapter 9, also in verse 31. And then the third is happening here in Mark chapter 10. In each of these chapters, Jesus pulls his guys, just the 12, and he says, look at me, look at me, look at me. Uh, Understand, some things are going down. And let's talk about this conversation here. Because part of what ends up happening is is it's very clear on what Jesus says. But these men, like all men, including all mankind, but especially us men, have selective hearing disease. And and they're going to hear what they want to hear. I would never do that. And and not hear what I don't want to hear. Never do that. Right, guys? No, we're all in on that. We're all in. Okay, here's what's going on. Jesus says five things here in verse 33. First... What Mark already told us that they're going to Jerusalem. But here's the deal. in the other two times that Jesus has talked with the guys, he's never told them the place. This is the first time Jesus tells the 12, we are going to Jerusalem and all of this is going down. That again, Understand this because of what's about to take place. Just tuck this in the back of your mind. They're going up to Jerusalem. Hold that thought. It's a big deal. They're going to Jerusalem with, the text tells us, Jesus says, and the Son of Man. The Son of Man. This is a term that oftentimes gets confused like Son of God. We in English uh, have the understanding for on one side of this that son of means like if I were to say Luke is you know my son we kind of carry it that way that birth of it's it, it's younger of it's it's there's an, a lesser of or a more immature of if you will in age and time and so forth coming out of. Uh, In that day, son of, well, it was used at times in kind of biological, but it was not used that way biologically with this terminology. This was a statement of equivalency. Back in that day, if someone said son of, they were saying they are equivalent, they are the exact representation of. That's why, by the way, why the Bible says son of God. When it says son of, it's not saying birthed of. It's not saying lesser of God. It's actually saying the exact equal representation of God, i.e., this is a title of God. This is the second person of the Trinity, the son of God. And here, son of man has that exact equal representative And hear hear me, this is so cool because Jesus is going to be using this term more and more and more through the gospel of Mark. And here's the hope in it. The one who came was not only God, but he was also the exact equal representative one for you and I that went and stood and died in our place as our exact equal representative. And there's hope in that. The one came in my place and did for me what I could not do for myself, son of. Now along with that, there's that reality in the day as they understood the term. But there's another very, very big thing. Whenever a Jew in that day heard the term son of man, they heard it as a title. And the title was tied to Daniel chapter 7. So when Son of Man was stated, they were automatically, their mind was in Daniel 7. In fact, let me read for you out of Daniel 7 what this says. Uh, Daniel says, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire, a stream of fire issued and came out from before him. I mean, don't you just get the feeling of power, awesomeness? And then it says, and a thousand thousand served the ancient of days, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. Hang with me. Now I jumped down. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. Son of man, and he came to the ancient of days, God the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory, and a kingdom, a a kingdom where all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Uh, see, in that day, what was going on is when people are, are hearing the term son of man, they're thinking that. And what Jesus is doing is he's saying, see guys, we are going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, boom, Daniel 7. He is making a declaration that he is at Daniel one. That he is the one who is going to be set on a throne, the old Davidic throne, fallen Davidic throne brought back. He is going to be sitting on the seat of the throne and he will have a kingdom that will reign. All peoples will be serving him and his, and his kingdom will be forever. That, that's what the disciples are thinking because that's how this is flows are. The Part of the problem though is that the disciples are not seeing the whole picture. You see, they were seeing the Daniel 7 reality, but they were missing the Isaiah 53 reality. And Isaiah 53 talks about how he would be despised and rejected by men. That he would be pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, chastised and wounded. They were forgetting the Psalm 22 prophecy of this one, that he would be mocked, that he would be encompassed by bulls and dogs, that he would be poured out, born bones out of joint in dust of death with hands and feet pierced. Listen, they're on the way to Jerusalem and in their mind, they're thinking, oh, this is the moment that Daniel 7-1 is going to the throne. But that's half true. And they also didn't want to hear about the fact that he would be going to the cross and slaughtered in our place. I put all this out because, friends, when you look at the manger, what do you see? Do you see the warm, hallmark Christmas spirit? I've seen the movies. Okay, I just lost my man card, but i'm just telling you what is that christmas spirit what is that i mean i'm all for the love i'm all for the season i'm all for the the joy of it the family of it the fun of it but it's so superficial And that's what's happening in this conversation. They're going to Jerusalem. Jesus says they're going. uh, uh, The son of man is going. Third thing he says, the son of man is going to be delivered over to the Jewish leaders. The Jewish leaders there are the ones who are going to condemn him to death. Then the Jewish leaders are going to be handing him over to the Gentiles to be killed. That's the fourth thing. It tells us, and this is the first time that Jesus brings this up, that the Gentile leaders will then have him mocked and spit on and flogged and killed. By the way, the whole world is represented in the death of Christ. The Jews and the Gentiles in it. And number five, after three days they will rise. He will rise. Friends, why the cross? Well, the answer to that is because of the redemption prize that's coming. Why is Jesus out front walking down the road to Jerusalem to be slaughtered in our place? Because of the redemption prize coming. What's the purpose of the manger? What do we see in the manger? What you see in the manger is the reality of the coming cross. And why the cross? Because of the coming resurrection. And all of that comes back to the manger. It's not just a cute little scene. It's everything all represented there. The Godhead has done a work. It's a beautiful thing. So as they walk, and that so shows the solidified pursuit of Christ, so does the manger. Next event. By the way, which we now jump into verse 35. And I understand this to take place in this walk. In other words, it's not sometime, another day, another time. Uh, part of that is because Matthew 20 uh, has the connecting word then in the Greek, which means it's kind of connected to this. Then on the way, here we go, verse 35 to 45, a superficial grasp by the disciples of what's before their eyes. Let's take a look here. Verse 35, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to Jesus, Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, that's interesting, guys. What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. By the way, those last three words are real important. Because those last three words are telling what they're seeing. They are amazed, and I think in this, what James is John is they're putting, connecting the dots, and I love the fact that they're doing that. But they're seeing this fact in this mindset of their own uh, perceived idea. Jesus is headed to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to set up the kingdom, and in this, that's the glory. And they're like, "I want in on this glory. We're right there." So what do they do? Well, uh, we see here they ask him if Jesus will do something for them. Now, Matthew 20, if you go to this, and and the only reason I'm bringing this up is a Christmas season uh, moment of counsel, okay? Um, In Matthew 20, it mentions that James and John's mom comes along James and John and helps them, moves them along to ask Jesus this question. Hey, James and John, I want my boys on the right and the left. Ask him about this. Bless her heart. Bless her heart here's the item of counsel. James and John are adult men, mom. And sometimes, oftentimes, frankly, at Christmas, Christmas season can become a very dysfunctional family time to friends somewhere else that you've heard of. And I'm just saying this. Because of what's happening here, literally, I want to put this in love on the table. Parents with adult children. May I remind you that when your children are growing up, they are biblically to honor and obey you. But when they become adults and they're out from under your authority, they are no longer called to obey you biblically. Hear me? And that means that your adult children make choices in their life, and sometimes us parents need to grow up. And see the change in relationship. And remember that our grown up adult children are now adults and we have a different relationship with them. They are no longer under my authority. I'm going to leave it at that before I get stoned. <laughs> Verse 35. Teacher, they say, with mom's prodding and their words, we want for you to do something for us. Now, I think we could all agree that generally that's moving towards something selfish. OK, I mean, it could be we want for you to do something like us, like help us better understand what it means to love people or to serve people. That's not where they're going with this. Uh, so they put this statement out. Jesus knows where this is going. In verse 36, parents, this is huge. Well, how does Jesus do it when you're asked the kind of a thing where, by the way, you're set up? How are you supposed to answer that? Does that happen to you sometimes in leadership or here at church? You kind of, hey, would you do something for me? And uh, It depends. And what does Jesus do here? He says, uh, well, what do you have for me to do? What would you want for me to do? And he's drawing out their heart. He's drawing out their heart to find out what's going on so they can see what's happening. And verse 37, they ask this question, and here's how I would sum it up in modern day terms. They just claimed shotgun. Okay, it's like, you know, you got a group of five of you together. And in that group of five, uh, someone's the driver, they have the car, and the other four are in the car, and while you're going out to the car, you go what? Shotgun. Shotgun. That means you get the passenger seat up front, and the other three saps are all in the back seat. Ha! Right? Right? That's what that means. And so, you know, you don't want to be in the back seat all squinched together with the other two unless you got a, you know, you're interested in anyway. We won't go there, uh, but on the dating point out there. So, uh, but people want to sit on the right seat first because that's the next best seat as opposed to being in the driver's seat. And so what they're doing with mom's prodding along and encouragement. Hey, Jesus, can we have shotgun in your glory? By the way, this is a request for a throne position. This isn't just like a drive to 7-Eleven. This is a throne position place. Jesus, we want the next two most important seats in your kingdom. Can we have those? Would you give those to us, Jesus? (laughs) I wonder what he's going to say. By the way... It just seems so superficial. It just seems so selfish. Doesn't it? Here they have this marvelous image and they're seeing the image and I think putting, connecting the dots that it's really cool, but they end up taking it selfish. May we not do that with Christmas. Seriously. May we not do the same thing where we end up in the beauty of what this is about Jesus Christ and the glory of Christ and the magnitude of Christ. May we not end up taking this whole thing and just making it all about us and our expectations and what people should be doing for me and how it should be right. Let's not do that. Let's make this about who it's about. Do the presence. Have the time together. Love on one another. Make this big about Jesus. Make it big about Jesus. Verse 38. So what's Jesus going to say? And Jesus said to them, Guys, you do not know what you are asking. And then he has some questions. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said, Oh, guys, just don't speak. (laughs) It's like, just zip it. Just don't speak. But here they go. And they said to him, Yeah, we're able to do that. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, um, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. Let's talk about this. By the way, this is not a communion conversation. This is not a believer's baptism conversation. That's not what's happening here. Instead, what's happening here is Jesus is graciously condemning their proud pretensions, but at the same time, teaching. It's just so so amazing how he does that. He's answering their requests, and here's how he does it. He he compares his coming suffering and death that he just told them about, and he compares that to a cup and to a baptism. Why would he do that? Well, in this, I'm just trying to, there's a whole theological discussions on it, different views on it, but I'm going to try and keep on the big picture here. Uh, Drinking the cup, two things about it. One, it contains this idea of sharing in back in that day. If you're going to participate in the cup with me, you're going to share in an experience. You are going to experience another person's fate. Whoa. Jesus is saying... I am essentially going to experience something that is shared with you and that is all of your sin is going to be poured on me and I'm paying the payment for you. And that's the cup. But it also has out of the Old Testament, it carries this idea of the wrath of God's judgment poured out on human sin and rebellion. And so when Jesus is talking about this cup, he's sharing in our divine punishment and judgment fate. He's taking it. He's sharing in the cup of being in our place. Man, that is so Isaiah 53.5. It says, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes, we are healed. That's the cup. And then there's also this baptized with a baptism. Uh, Back in that day in popular Greek, uh, the baptism is not just referred to a believer's baptism, but the word carried this idea along with it of being submersed in something, uh, of having this idea of being overwhelmed with something. And so here Christ is bringing this in that I am going to be baptized in a baptism, a submersion of all this, if you will, on the cross. And this cup and this baptism comment just adds to Jesus completely understands what he's entering into. He's not making it up, he's not figuring it out. It's not being doled to him a piece at a time. This is God in the flesh, pursuit to the cross. And it's clear that's what he's doing for you and I. One commentator says, applied to Jesus, the images of the cup and the baptism signify that Jesus bears the judgment merited by the sins of men. Thank God that he took the cup. and He was baptized in our baptism, if you will. And then Jesus then notes and essentially prophesies that, that James and John will participate in some way. You will, you will. You are going to enter into the cup. You are going to enter into this suffering, uh, we could call it. You're going to be martyred. And they are going to enter into all this, submersed in it. I just got to say, from two weeks ago, that is just such the idea of back of the line servant of all. Hey, you will. You'll participate in it. Verse 41. So Jesus does some teaching, some clarification, and then we find out about the other 10 and what they're thinking. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Can you see why? Dudes, you claim shotgun. What's the deal with that? Now we're in the back with nine others. (laughs) And yet in it, what's going on, it's like, are, are these guys more spiritual and condemning them for their selfishness? I actually think that this is along with other commentators that this is more likely that's what's going on is they're like, crud, we didn't think of that first. Seriously, I think that's what's going on here. And they're like, dude, and especially Peter, because James, John and Peter were the three. I mean, how hurt is Peter i got to be in the back seat with the other guys? I thought I was up in the front with you three. And here it is where that's taking place. So they're all ticked off, uh, kind of at themselves, that James and John were smarter than they were. Uh, verse 42, and Jesus called them to him. It's like, okay, kids, all come together here. Let's bring this. This is about to get out of hand. Let's bring this together and listen to what he says. Guys, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, that they lorded over them, Guys, you know that. I mean, just we've seen that. The Gentiles and how they lorded over their own. And they're great ones. They exercise authority over them. By the way, this is so the conversation from two Sundays ago. And and listen, if you want to be great, uh, verse 43, but it shall not be so among you. That is not great. That is not what being great looks like. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your what? Servant. And whoever would be first among you must be doulos of all, slave of all. Not just servant, but slave of all. So in light of that, let me correct two Sundays ago. Back of the line, servant of all, slave of all. Why would Jesus be saying that? Let's keep reading. Verse 44, whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, title, Daniel 7, 1. Even the one who from the ancient of days is going to be given a kingdom and glory and dominion and all nations and all peoples will be bowing down and worshiping that one. Even that one came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom. That's a deliverance by purchase. It's a, it's a substitutionary payment. Even the Daniel 7 one did not come to sit shotgun. The Daniel 7 one came to be the Isaiah 53 one, the Psalm 22 one with the eventual reality that he will be the Daniel 7 one. But right now, it's to the cross, servant of all, slave of all. Boy, just in our day, when he's talking about how people lord over, I mean, that's so our world. You know, we think that someone is great when they have... More people over them and more authority. You know, like if you have more people to direct um, things for them to do and ways for them to serve, you, you are greater. Isn't that how our culture views it? I mean, really, doesn't it? It is, it just is. You have a bigger business, you're greater. Hey, men, we do this. We do the whole shotgun thing. I mean, guys, seriously, we do it. We dole out the power words. Certain words that tell what our titles are, what our responsibilities are. We'll even do the doling out in a congenial kind of humble way various numbers that say who we are and what we are and what we've done and what we can do but the reality is that's not great in God's eyes the reality is that when we do that let me just tell you be frank with you here in the ministry world I was in business for 21 years and in the ministry world I've kind time times gone on sometimes this ministry world is weird and it is true at times where pastors have conversations and you, you know in the back of the mind that it's like so how big is your church It's true. And we do this, guys. We do it. Oh, oh by the way, ladies, uh, I love you. Uh, but you do it too. And I don't say that because, like, I'm a lady and I know. I already lost my man card on a Hallmark movie, though. <laughs> but I say it because I talked with my wife about it. And I asked her, are there ways that women vie for shotgun? She's like, oh, yeah. We do it with comparisons. We do it with competitions on our looks. With our home, with our career identity at times. I'm a stay at home mom. You're a career mom. And then other times it's reversed. I'm a career woman. You're just a stay at home mom. What kind of silliness do we play? It's just true. I mean, and, and in it also, it's just Karen had made mention that at times it's like with relationships where it's like, you know, i got a better relationship going on or uh, I've got a boyfriend, you don't, neener, neener, um, however that goes. Or so oftentimes it's like with James and John's mom who really is all about the grandness of her boys and what's happening. Oh, by the way, men, ladies, we, we do it. And also I'll just say this, followers of Christ, we do it we do it oh yeah we do you know how we do it where it's like we hide our failures and struggles because we don't want anyone to know that (laughs) I might struggle with that or I'm not perfect you know how we do that don't you at least the guy next to you um yeah you know how we just play games sometimes with uh I've been to certain schools or I've been to Bible college and you haven't um I've been a Christian for so long and you haven't been a Christian that long. Um, Just even with our giftedness and our spiritual gifts, uh, just take our passions sometimes and even our spiritual experiences and we can play games with each other and sometimes we'll even take titles, even titles like the child of God and we can kind of get arrogant about it. I'm a child of God. I just want you to know that. God loves me. We can do that as small group leaders or as elders or pastors. And it's just all self-throning. And it's ridiculous in God's kingdom. Because there's only one king. And we are all equal at the foot of the cross. May the glory of the Lord be the thing that resounds out of us. Jesus says to these guys, guys, none of that, none of that, none of that kind of gaming, and instead be back of the line, servant of all, slave of all, and why, why, why should I do that, why should you do that, the answer to that is because the one in the manger did that, the one in the manger did that, we superficialize the manger way too much. And uh, in, in all this, it's, uh, it's not because the manger and Christmas is too commercialized. It's not, that's not the problem. The problem is not the commercialization of Christmas. The problem is the superficialization of Christmas. Friends, it's Christmas. The manger scene is right before us. And as Jesus is in that image of entering into Jerusalem, to the cross, and to the resurrection, we can be like James and John and, and the others, and we superficialize the whole thing, and we just hear what we want to hear and back what we don't want to hear. And we make it and we shape Jesus into the kind of Messiah that we want and not who he is. We we can take Christmas and turn it into a storybook morality story. Love, peace, kindness, family, eggnog. And we leave it there. And it just becomes this nice mood of motivation that's not any different than an atheist that wants to be kind. It's more than a morality story. Also, the manger is not just a self thing. It's not just a reminder of what the Lord has done for you. It's what the Lord has done and made available for all. It's way bigger than you and I. And oftentimes we can turn Jesus into being, because Jesus is all about me. Jesus is my boyfriend. Jesus is my whatever. And, And we end up going, because Jesus is about me, I'm with Jesus. But do you see what's happening there? Jesus isn't about me. We're to be about Jesus. He did come for us. He did die on the cross. He did rise from the dead. And he did make forgiveness and redemption available to all, to any who would receive it. But know this. It's not all about me and it's not all about you. It's all about him. And do the presence. Do the loving on one another. Enjoy the season. I don't want to be that Grinch. Love it just like at Passover time, the excitement and the amazement was going on. But don't take it superficial. Instead, might I suggest this, that we look at the magnitude of the manger through the lens of Scripture. And when we see the picture of the manger... We are reminded in our thinking of Genesis 3.15. That after sin first came into the picture. God came and told Adam and Eve. And, and in it told and said that there was one who would be coming. Who would deal a lethal blow to Satan. And, and that one. Genesis three fifteen one, one. That's the one in the manger. Who has come. And also in the manger is the Isaiah 53 one. In the Psalm 22 one. the, The one that stood in man's place for sin. And took on our shame. And took on our punishment. When we didn't deserve any of it. And he did it. And he took it on making salvation available. He is the one that is the Mark 15 one. The one in the manger is the one who died on the cross. And as a resulting of that, the temple veil was torn as we'll get there in the coming weeks and months ahead, making access to God available to anyone. That's what the manger is about. And the manger is also about Mark 16, the one who rose from the dead, who conquered death, and the Genesis 3 15 reality happened. That's in the manger. Don't be shh. Be awesome. That's in the manger. In the manger is the Revelation 1 1. The the, the one that John, uh, later from this point in time that we see, remember James and John, hey, will you do a thing for us? Shotgun, John, later on in Revelation 1, sees the glorified, magnified Jesus Christ and falls down on his face thinking he's going to die. That's the one in the manger. And the one in the manger is the Revelation 19 one. The one who will one day come on the white horse with all of heaven, <clears throat> with authority and power to claim dominion and all the glory of the one in the major will be seen at its maximum reality. He is also the Philippians 2.10.1 to whom every knee in heaven and on earth will bow. Do you realize this? That every demon, including Satan, will bow and confess that he is King and Lord. That's the one in the manger. That's the one in the manger, friends. Let's get away from, isn't that cute? Let's read about mice around the Christmas tree. Read the story, but make big of Jesus. Make big of our Lord. Please, let's do that. Let's do that. The one in the manger is all of that. And the one in the manger is the one who ended up for the reason of Paul making this declaration in Philippians 3. But whatever was to my prophet. I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of Jesus Christ, my Lord. For whose sake I have lost all things, I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. I want to know Christ And the power of his resurrection. And the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Friends, that's face down. That's face down thinking. That's face down living. That's face down before the manger. That's the one that's come. That's the one that's come. Oh, may we lift and magnify the Savior this Christmas. Lord, in our feebleness we fall. Lord, if there's anyone here in this room who does not know what it is, to enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I pray this Christmas would change everything. And I just say, if that might be you, maybe this Christmas you, you are realizing that you frankly have had a very superficial view of who the Christ is. i just pause on this prayer for a moment to say to you, friend, the Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet there is one who has come. The second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, has come. The Bible says as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Have you come to that place where you've driven the stake in the ground and and not just kind of done this passe, I'm kind of about this religious Jesus thing, but I mean driven the stake in the ground and received Christ as your Savior. Confessed your sin and received Him. If you haven't, it's time. No more superficiality. It's time to enter into relationship and you can do that right now. I also, in this moment, I just want to kind of pause and speak to those of you who are in Christ. May I remind you that this whole context of what's happening here is happening with followers of Christ. And they've gone superficial. Has that been you? It's time to confess and repent and come back. Father, I just ask, would you help us to see you? We struggle with it. Oh, we struggle with it. We say it, we think it, but you know we struggle to grasp it. We are quick to take things superficial. We are quick to take things self-centered. But, oh God, I pray this Christmas season there would be a turning point in our lives. we'd step out of our selfishness. And we would step into being centered on you. More of you, Lord, more of you. And Lord, as we are about to sing this closing song, you know, my favorite Christmas song, O Holy Night. So often this is a song that exemplifies what we've just been talking about. We can sing the words of the grandness of the one that has come and the holiness of it all. And we can sing to fall on our knees and yet we don't even think what we're singing. God, I would pray even here in our closing time that we would sing with a solidified pursuit Merry Christmas. You have come. You have come. In Christ's name, amen.